When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, I'm Robert Evans, and this is once again Behind the Bastards, the show where we tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. And this week, of course, I'm in Portland, Oregon on the 17th, which is to us tomorrow, but to you in the past. There will be a rally from a group called Patriot Prayer, who you will be hearing a lot about in the next episode of this podcast with some members of Rose City Antifa as guests. And today, of course, my guest is... My name is Marielle Eaton, and I've lived in Portland for 14 years, and I do many different things here. Including quite a bit of activism. Quite a bit of activism. My main effort is with sexual and relationship violence prevention and victim advocacy. And I've done activism around that for about a decade now. And I am a victim advocate both in the university setting as well as independent organization settings. And you've also done quite a bit of anti-fascist action in the street, uh, mm-hmm. during which you uh, you were photographed uh, and have become sort of a figurehead of, of Antifa <laughs> for CNN's reports on the matter. So CNN, uh, we're officially it's officially an interview with Antifa. Uh, <laughs> that's the Fox News Chiron that uh, yeah, would that's go across. True. Yeah, that's true. So uh, we're going to be talking about Oregon, your lovely home state, which yeah. is um, one of the most beautiful places in the world, mm-hmm. uh, and also way more racist, uh, <laughs> historically at least, than uh, most people would give it credit for based on Portlandia. And currently. Yeah. It's not just macrobiotic burritos and, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of something else hippie-ish, uh, cars that run on... Garbage. Garbage. Yeah, yeah, garbage <laughs> cars. It's, uh, it's, 
It's a little bit deeper than that. So yes. that's what we're going to be getting into the day. Today, the bastard is the state of Oregon. Excellent. Um, which, you know, sorry, Oregon, I do love you, but uh, <laughs> let's get into it. So Peter Hardiman Burnett was born in 1807. He started out as a self-educated, which I think in 1807 just means uneducated, uh, <laughs> owner of a general store in Clear Creek, Tennessee. As a young man, Peter Burnett came to suspect that an enslaved black person was drinking from his store's whiskey barrel at night. So he set up a booby trap, a rifle that was rigged to fire when the window shutter was opened. His trap wound up killing the poor man when the guy tried to break into his house. Uh, Burnett expressed remorse, but was not charged with any crime because it was 1807. And that sort of thing wasn't really a crime in Tennessee back then. Mm. In 1843, Burnett helped organize and lead the first great wagon train to Oregon. So he was one of the pioneers who first discovered this territory. Oregon Trail, you could say, is a game about Peter Burnett, a mm -hmm. uh, murderer and uh, soon-to-be politician, mm -hmm. because he was quickly elected to the Provisional Legislature of Oregon. Uh, now, this is before Oregon was a state, so it was still a territory. And he served as the territory of Oregon's first Supreme Court Justice, uh, Chief Supreme Court Justice. So I'm guessing his qualifications were led a wagon train and was a murderer. And so in 1843, they were like, you're our judge. You're in, you're in charge of this state right now. Um, so 1844, Peter Burnett was instrumental in passing what came to be known as the Burnett Lash Law. Have you heard of the Burnett Lash Law? From you. Okay, right. You're Am I allowed behind to the disclose curtain. that? Yeah, 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 that we've talked prior <laughs> to setting up this. this uh, I had not heard that's that. That's the secret. Usually, I had not remembered that. <laughs> I'm sure I've heard it, but I have not remembered that until you brought it up. It's a little bit famous. Um, mm -hmm. it, uh, it's essentially stated that all black people were required to leave Oregon County under penalty of being whipped, quote, not less than 20 or more than 39 stripes. Mm -hmm. uh, this punishment was to be repeated every six months until they left the state. So one of the interesting things about Peter Burnett is that he's a classic example of someone winding up on the right side of a historical issue for tremendously wrong reasons. Because mm -hmm. Peter Burnett was an outspoken abolitionist, mm -hmm. not because he believed slavery was wrong, but because he was just that racist. Mm -hmm. And he thought that if there was slavery, there would be people who weren't white in the country. Mm -hmm. That was his whole issue, mm -hmm. which is there's a whole like chunk of the abolitionist movement, which were just people who were too racist to own slaves. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a little historical angle that gets left out a lot of the time, but... Um bizarre. So, uh, Burnett's law did include a grace period, uh, three years for black women and two years for black men. So he gave them some time to get out of the state. Burnett also pushed against Chinese migration to Oregon. He tried to ban it. Um, he later went on to become the first governor of the state of California. So he's my state's first governor mm -hmm. as well. And of course, his first action as governor of the state of California was, pretty sure you can guess, he tried to ban all black people from yeah. California. Yeah. yeah, what do you know? And then he tried to ban all Chinese people from California. Uh -huh. Peter Burnett was a consistent man, if nothing mm -hmm. else. Uh, mm -hmm. And I got a picture of him, and he looks like, we'll put it up on the site, behindthebastards.com, but he looks like the guy you would cast to play a generic old-timey oh, racist. Yeah. Look at that forehead. That is, that's a five head. Yeah, that Six is a, maybe even a seven. I mean, it yeah. is. it just keeps going. And those little curls on the side. The curls, I, I'm not going to go against him for the curls. No. I mean, that's, he seems like he might have had a no, lovely head No, that's the hair. only redeeming quality. And, I mean, it's a weird cravat. He looks like uh, someone in a story who would, like, take off his cravat and his head would yeah. fall off in, a, in an old fable. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't look like a very happy person. No, no, he does not. He looks a little bit like uh, the painting of the guy Vigo in Ghostbusters 2, the, uh, <laughs> the bad guy who's trying to steal that baby's body. Like, yep. Yeah, yeah. He's, got that, he's got his eyes are doing that sort of thing. So, 
you really owe it to yourself to look at a picture of Peter Burnett, a guy who looks like his goal in life was to ban people who aren't white from multiple states. Yes. Yeah. So Burnett's lash law did not last long, which is kind of hard to say 10 times fast. The lash mm, law did not I'm last not, long. I'm not even going to attempt it. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. So now the good news is that no black people are recorded to have been lashed under it. Uh, it apparently was not used even in the 1840s in Oregon. Enough people were like, this seems a little <laughs> bit too racist. Yeah. That said, you know, we're talking Oregon in the 1840s. Who knows what happened, in mm-hmm. especially rural areas where the rule of law was uh, even less than it was in Portland. Yeah. Whether or not it was used, the law reflected the values of the first white people who settled in the territory mm-hmm. of Oregon. They wanted their state to be slave-free, but because that was the only way to ensure the state had no black people at all. Mm-hmm. In 1848, the Oregon territorial government passed a law that banned any, quote, Negro or mulatto from living in Oregon. In 1850, the Oregon Land Donation Act gave, quote, whites and half-breed Indians, 650 acres of land from the government. All other people of color were banned from receiving land grants. Mm -hmm. So Oregon was founded as a whites-only state. It was seen as this is going to be just white people in this chunk. So that was the Pacific Northwest from the get-go, almost 200 years ago. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we'll be talking about there's some people who still think that ought to be the way things work. Yes. So from the beginning, Oregon was a very rough place to be anything but a very, very white person. There were some extraordinarily brave black pioneers who did try to make a life out here. In 1851, one of them was Jacob Vanderpool. Uh, He was a former sailor. I think he came from the Caribbean islands, but I don't think we know exactly. But he came to own a saloon, restaurant, and boarding house in Oregon City. And a white guy named Theophilius Magruder, uh, which is... Quite a name. Quite a name. In the name you would expect of a guy who's about to do, or who did what we're about to talk about him doing, uh, reported him for the crime of being black in Oregon, mm-hmm. um, and he was given 30 days to leave the state. Now, Magruder also owned a hotel and a bar in the same town, so it's entirely mm-hmm. possible that his motive was as financial as it was racist, if not more so, but yep. Jacob Vanderpool was forced to leave and forced yep. to give up his business. In 1857, Oregon wrote a state constitution that enshrined its exclusion of black people into law. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quote, No free Negro or mulatto not residing in the state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come, reside, or be within the state, or hold any real estate, or make any contract, or maintain any suit therein. And the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes, and for their effectual exclusion from the state, and from the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state, or employ them, or harbor them therein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... That's the initial law that Oregon is founded under, 1857. In 1859, Oregon Territory finally becomes a state. It was the only state in the Union that was officially whites only. So this is the only time that this happened. You know, as much racism as there is in the history of the United States, Oregon's the only state that tried to do this. So that's a claim to fame, I guess. (laughs) Texas has the Alamo. uh, There you go. Which is also pretty racist. It's kind of... I grew up in Texas, and they always kind of smoothed over why the Texans were rebelling against Mexico. Yeah. It had a lot to do with the fact that they wanted <laughs> yeah. to own people, and Mexico Absolutely. didn't like people owning people. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah, they really hide that fact. Yeah, yeah. Always. Yeah. So uh, while Oregon initially ratified the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave citizenship to all people born or naturalized in the United States, including former slaves, this is why we have birthright citizenship. It was mm-hmm. They were trying to figure out a legal solution to, we've got all these people. Yep. 
that we forced to be here, <laughs> yep. and now they've got to be citizens. Yeah. Yep. So Oregon initially ratified the 14th Amendment, but then it almost immediately rescinded the ratification mm-hmm. of the amendment. Uh, I guess people got angry. Uh, mm-hmm. Oregon is also one of only six states that refused to ratify the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote. So fortunately, Oregon eventually got its shit together enough to finally ratify the 15th Amendment. You want to guess when that happened? <laughs> I've known this before, but I can't think of it. It was eight or 1959. Yes. Yeah, 1959. Yes. Yep. They were like, all right, we'll ratify the amendment that lets black yep. guys vote. Yeah. Just black guys. But, yep. uh, yeah. It did not re-ratify the 14th Amendment until 1973. Yes. Yeah. I definitely so. remember that date. I think it's important when we talk about like why this stuff still lingers because it yeah. didn't get, it's not, we're not talking about like, you know, 1865 really isn't that long ago no. when you talk about generations because the last not. Civil War widow's pension just stopped getting paid like three years ago. Absolutely. Um, oh, but, people say that all the time. Yeah. They're like, oh, racism's done. Slavery's over. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about redlining. Oh, well, that was a long time ago too. We will be talking about redlining. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we but will. yeah, Oregon <laughs> ratified the amendment that gave birthright citizenship to people 15 years before I was born, yeah. which is yeah, not yeah, that yeah. long. No. Nope. Um, not disco might have been a thing. I don't know when that came I think off. that may have been a thing. Yeah. It's about as old as disco. It's about as old as disco. <laughs> <laughs> Although that does feel old now. That does feel old now. Disco actually feels older than <laughs> yes. white supremacy in Oregon. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, it's probably not hard to see why the state of Oregon has stayed so white, even though after 1868, there was nothing legally the state authorities could do to keep black people out of Oregon. Mm-hmm. So again, it's not whites only after that point. Mm -hmm. By 1890, there were only around a thousand black people in the entire state. By 1920, there were just 2,000. Now, the 1920s would have been a rough time to be a black person in Oregon because Oregon was the highest per capita membership of the Ku Klux Klan of any state in the Union. They marched and, yeah. They gathered in Portland proper all the time. Thousands of them. Thousands Uh, of them. Thousands. They're uh, claverns, I think. Yeah, that's the name. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They're grand wizards. Yeah. Uh, Cross burnings. mm -hmm, Cross burnings. Right in the center of the city. Yeah, I prefer to... It's easier to focus on the ridiculous names, but yeah, it was cross burnings and murders and... (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. We have to talk about that now. No, I mean, we can... That's what we're here for. Yeah, that is what we're here for. So, Democrat Walter Pierce was elected governor in 1922 after receiving the enthusiastic endorsement of the Oregon Ku Klux Klan. In fact, that may have been why he won. According to an article in The Guardian, quote, Photos in the local paper show the Portland chief of police, sheriff, district attorney, U.S. attorney, and mayor posing with Klansmen, accompanied by an article saying the men were taking advice from the Klan. So, again, really not weird that it took until the 70s to ratify the 14th and 59 mm-hmm. to ratify that. Yeah. So World War II is when things really started to change demographically in Oregon. This was the first time that a large number of black people began to move to the state. And it was because America was in this whole war thing and we needed to build a shitload of boats. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing Portland's great at, it's being a place to build a shitload of boats. You guys... We got our boats. If I ever need to build a navy, this is the city I'm going to build that navy in. Go for it. Yeah. We're here. I'm going to crowdfund it like 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 a GoFundMe, but instead of for medical bills for... Like a, like a battleship or three. And what are you going to use it for? I don't know. You sail around. Like what L. Ron Hubbard did. Just sail around for eight or mm. nine years. Podcasting. You know? Yeah, podcasting. Just pod podcast boat. Yeah, a podcast boat. A podcast cult boat. USS Navy. cult b- podcast boat. I was going to say USS Is Bastard. That- Oh, you. Yeah, yeah, that's more catchy than mine. Yeah, exactly. It's more catchy than mine. I'm not the namer in this. Well, in fairness, I'm not the namer either. Somebody else 
figure that out. Oh, okay, so, there you go. No, I, uh, I feel your pain. <laughs> so by the end of World War II, more than 20,000 black people had moved to Oregon. Many of them resided in Vanport, a mm-hmm. small city between Portland and Vancouver, Washington. Calling it a city, at first at Ye- least, yeah. Yeah. It was... It was, <laughs> it was- yeah, yeah, small town. Small town. It was most of it was temporary housing that yes. was built because they had so many workers coming in and they needed mm-hmm. the ability to host them. And Portland was a very tiny city at this mm-hmm. point still. Here's how the Smithsonian described the creation of Vanport. Quote Completed in just 110 days, the town, comprised of 10,414 apartments and homes, was mostly a slipshod combination of wooden blocks and fiberboard walls. Built on marshland between the Columbia Slough and the Columbia River, Vanport was physically segregated from Portland and kept dry only by a system of dikes that held back the flow of the Columbia River. So, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Mm -hmm. This is built in basically the worst location you could build a town to keep it dry. Years later, Manly Maben, who grew up in Vanport, would describe it this way. Quote, the psychological effect of living on the bottom of a relatively small area, diked on all sides to a height of 15 to 25 feet, was vaguely disturbing. It was almost impossible to get a view of the horizon from anywhere in Vanport, at least on the ground or in the lower level apartments. And it was even difficult from upper levels, which I can't really imagine this. It sounds like almost something you'd see in like a dystopian movie where Mm -hmm. these people just have these dikes rising, like they're walled in on all sides. And this is the hub of you know, the black community in Mm -hmm. Portland, you know, for the first time that it really has uh, any size at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, the idea was that once folks had settled into Vanport and, you know, worked at their jobs long enough and earned some cash, they would be able to rent or buy homes elsewhere. It was not intended to be a permanent development. But discriminatory housing policy made it nearly impossible for black people to, uh, you know, live anywhere else in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, So once the war ended, the mayor of Portland wrote a newspaper article telling the black people of Vanport that they were no longer welcome in the state. Uh, This is the mayor of Portland. Mm -hmm. He basically put up a letter saying like, okay, thank you for building the boats. (laughs) You can go. (laughs) You can go now. Yep. Yeah. The Housing Authority discussed tearing the town down. A 1947 Oregon Journal article described local attitudes to Vanport this way. To many Oregonians, Vanport has been undesirable because it is supposed to have a large colored population. Of the some 23,000 inhabitants, only slightly over 4,000 are colored residents. True, this is a high percentage per capita compared to other northwestern cities, but as one resident puts it, the colored people have to live somewhere, and whether the northwesterners like it or not, they are here to stay. I think there's a lot to dig into in terms mm-hmm. of the phrasing there, both that this, mm-hmm. this journalist, rather than being like, kind of confronting the racism, is yeah. like, well, they're not entirely accurate. It's only a quarter color. And then yeah. also, yeah, whether uh, whether the Northwesterners like it or not, they are here to stay. Yeah. So that's the attitude in 1947. So today you know Vanport as Delta Park. Yeah. Um, that's uh, sort of the land that it's that's on now because very little of Vanport City still remains. Yeah. Um, in 1948, it started raining very hard. Uh, on Memorial Day, 1948, Residents of Vanport woke up to driving rain in this letter from the Housing Authority of Portland, the HAP. Remember, dikes are safe at present. You will be warned if necessary. Mm -hmm. You will have time to leave. Don't get excited. I do feel like if the government's sending you all caps notes that say don't get excited, you should probably get excited. You should get pretty excited. You should get pretty excited. I mean, and 
what happened next is... Uh, uh, horrendous. Yeah, horrendous and very predictable. Yep. The dikes did not hold. Uh, yeah. A hole opened up shortly after 4 p.m. In roughly one day, Vanport, Oregon's second largest city at the time, was completely wiped out by floodwaters. Mm-hmm. 18,500 people, 6,300 of whom were black, were displaced. Hundreds died. But we don't know how many because it really seems like the HAP may have secretly disposed of hundreds yeah. of corpses. Yeah. Um, and even, a- even with the predictability that you were mentioning, mm-hmm. people often will trust authority figures. And even if it seems predictable in hindsight, it, at the time it probably didn't. They yeah. probably really trusted that, that they were safe. Oh, yeah. And I, I was sorry. I was not trying to say that the oh. people of Vanport should have predicted it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh, the, yeah. The city should they have known something was yeah, wrong. Yeah, they didn't give a shit. With this place that was basically built underwater with the water held in by mm-hmm. walls and then the walls start getting mm-hmm. flooded with water. Absolutely. Um, there's a rumor that 457 dead people were shipped to Japan for some reason. There's a bunch of weird rumors around what was I done I hadn't heard to that. That's very died. odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to dig into. I heard but there it, were cover-ups. I hadn't heard that. It seems like a reasonable guess would be somewhere between four and 600 dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's very hard to say. Yeah. And uh, we see that cycle repeating itself with Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yeah, yep. where uh, it's it's weird how things rhyme all of the time in history. Yep, Yeah, all the time. Uh, speaking of rhyming, it's time for an ad break. That was a bad plug, but do you have any products and or services you'd like to plug before we get to the ones that paid us? Uh, so it gets to just kind of be anything? Anything you want. I usually pick random objects on the table because okay. uh, I just love advertising. All right. I'm going to say that everyone should read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Ooh, that is much more meaningful than the plug I was going to go with. So yeah, read <laughs> Man's we, Search for Meaning. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I was going Pick to it plug up at your library. Uh, Aveeno Daily Moisturizing Lotion, the oh, only yeah. daily moisturizing lotion currently on this table. <laughs> but, Love it. Let's uh let's let's move over to the products and or services that actually paid us for our time. Excellent. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. We're back. We're back, and we're talking about racism in Oregon. Yeah, now for something completely different. (laughs) Well, I mean, compared to your sponsors. Oh, yes, very different, because none of our sponsors support racism in Oregon. Are you sure? Uh, yeah, pretty sure. Okay, good. I mean, like, they make belts, like okay. Grip 6. I don't see okay. how a belt could be racist. Depends on where they're made. Yeah. <laughs> Should I be saying this? <laughs> Should I be talking about consumerism under capitalism? Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, we do. It's one of those things. We uh, This is the ocean that we live in, so you can't sure do anything is. but swim. But you sure. can try to pick products that you feel don't add to the problem. Yeah, as long as you're not sponsored by Amazon. We're not sponsored by Amazon, and I do believe that it's a general good to keep people's pants up. Yes. Yeah. Let's uh, get back into it. Let's continue. Let's crack into it. So, there's a lot more to say in terms of Portland's history being terrible to the black people who live there. There was the time when voters in 1956 uh, approved the construction of an arena that necessitated the destruction of 476 homes, half of which were black people's homes. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, black people made up, like, less than 2% of the city mm-hmm. at this point. So we're not talking about a proportional sort of, yeah. yeah. And the expressway as well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no, I was about to go into a completely different time that they did that a second then- time. So, yeah, there's, there's even more. <laughs> there's even more. Yeah, there was the time also in 1956 <laughs> when the city of Portland used federal funds to expand a local hospital by bulldozing 76 acres yep. of black-owned homes and businesses mm-hmm. at the junction of North Williams Avenue and Russell Street, which at that point was considered Portland's Black Main Street, yep. which, if I'm keeping track, is at least the third Black Main Street in a city in the United States that was destroyed. Although, since Portland didn't bomb theirs, which is what happened in a couple of other states... I guess it's, mm. yeah, better than the Air Force. I suppose. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not It's great. hard to, to tell better from worse. <laughs> yeah. Slow deprivation is not always. No. Yeah. I was 
reaching for a little bit of levity in a situation that doesn't deserve it. So tell us about this expressway, which I did not include in here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyone who's in Portland knows exactly what I'm talking about. But for people outside, Mm -hmm. there is this very long freeway project that goes past and around the Memorial Coliseum, which you just mentioned, that was built, the arena. And this expressway was initially going to be in the west portion of Portland. Anyone who knows Portland knows that the Willamette River bisects east from west. Mm -hmm. And so it was initially going to be on the other side of the river. But then people over there were saying, oh, no, like, we don't want that over here. And it was, you know, predominantly white people who were saying that. And so they decided. my backyard. Yeah, exactly. Nimby, nimby. And so it instead got placed right, wrapped around right next to the Memorial Coliseum and resulted in the destruction of many, 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 many more homes and displaced people there. So it just goes straight around northeast Portland and up north. And well, but I'm going to guess most of those homes were upper middle class, you know, Caucasian people, right? I <laughs> oh. Mean, because that's most of that part oh of Portland, gosh. right? Let, let me check. Hold on a second. No. Really? Yeah. Are you surprised? Racist. <laughs> Racist policies in Portland? Portland? Oh my gosh. That doesn't sound like what what we're about to continue talking about for the next 30 minutes. Oh wait, I thought we were back to the sponsors. (laughs) We're back to belts. No, no, we're not talking belts. (laughs) We're not talking belts. (laughs) So yeah, really kicking off in the 1970s and 80s was a process called redlining. This is basically banks colluding to refuse mortgage loans to qualified black applicants would be uh, the quick way to sort of sum up Mm -hmm. the bulk of that process. Uh, An investigation published by the Oregonian in 1990, yay journalism, found that Portland banks were granting loans to black Oregonians at roughly one-tenth the rate they were granting them to white people, Mm -hmm. Um, and one-tenth the rate that they were supposed to be granting Mm -hmm. them. And for those who don't know, it's literal red lines drawn on a map, very specifically placed. And that's something that I think a lot of people are not aware of, that it is it really refers to red lines that were written on maps. Yeah. And they're basically saying, we want to keep black people out of these neighborhoods. We don't want to allow them to buy houses here. And it's not like they were really granting a lot of loans to the black neighborhoods either. But like, yeah, they were Mm -hmm. specifically trying to hem them in. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like the zoning version of kettling a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So uh, there were also a series of police shootings of black men in the 1970s in Portland. Uh, And in the 1980s, an investigation revealed that the local Portland police had been running over possums and leaving the corpses in front of Mm black-owned restaurants, which I don't even know what to to say. It's it's a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, So given all of that, it's probably not much of a surprise to listeners that for much of the 1980s and 1990s, Portland became known in the punk community as a haven for neo-Nazi skinheads. Uh, yep. Racist skins would be, uh, I think the. I listen to a lot of that kind of punk music. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. I, there's a whole lingo here. Yeah. I saw the movie Green Room. Uh, it's a fine <laughs> film about Nazi That's skins a in Oregon. Scary, scary movie. It is a scary movie. I left feeling. All sorts of feels. That's how you're supposed to feel. That's how you're supposed to feel. Patrick Stewart plays a real good racist. Yeah, that was quite close to home. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I was going to say the possum imagery stayed. Really? What you do you still, mean? You would still see people refer to possums in coded language even through the 1980s from racist skinheads. They would say, keep the possums out. Really? Yeah. Oh, it was still so, utilized. I did not have... I just knew that the police were doing this. Yep. I had no idea. I thought they were just like being dicks yep. and there were a lot of dead possums in Portland. But there's a no. racial element to yes. the tape. Fascinating. Yeah, it was still used as a symbol of terror and racism wow so from the cops to the punks yep 
That's not usually how that goes. <laughs> Especially if I know one thing about punks, I mean, they're not yeah. supposed to talk to fucking cops. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, but these are the these yeah, are the Nazi the punks. Skin, so Nazi skinhead punks. Nazi punks. They liked when the cops were being racist. Yeah, that's the thing they want cops doing. Yeah. Uh, so. On May 12th, 1988, about a month after I was born, Willamette yeah. Weekly published Young Nazis, Portland's New Breed of Racists, about the growing population of young fascists mm-hmm. in the city. Uh, reporter Jim Redden interviewed several of these guys in their southeast Portland apartment, and credit where it's due, this was not like the New York Times profile and the Nazi next door thing, like it was an important subject mm-hmm. that was covering it. Mm-hmm. He seems to have done it a, a good job of, mm-hmm. of, of doing it, at least from what I've read. Mm-hmm. He asked them about an assault on a guy named Sam Chin, a 27-year-old Portland resident originally from Singapore. Three skinheads had confronted Chin's family, beat up and stomped on him, mm-hmm. and Redden brought this up to the Nazis. I'm going to read a quote from the article. Mm-hmm. Although they denounce the media's focus on violence, they are not unwilling to completely reject it. While they say the assault on Chin was not representative of their beliefs, they repeatedly stress that they are willing to fight for their cause. We wouldn't beat up someone for no reason at all, says Kay, a tall male with a tattoo of a heavily booted skinhead on his left bicep. But we're ready to defend ourselves. Which Mm. I I picked that quote Mm -hmm. because you could put those words in the mouth of Patriot Prayer's Joey Gibson. Absolutely. Uh, who's the guy running the rallies that have been causing oh, yeah. the fights recently? We'll talk That's about That's the, the same next sort of sentiment yeah. that comes from Oath Keepers, mm-hmm. Three Percenters, all of them. Yeah. So, next we're going to talk about what happened on November 13th, 1988, when Mulugeta Sarah, a 28 year old Ethiopian immigrant, uh, a student at PSU, and a father of one, mm-hmm. was dropped off in the parking lot of his apartment complex by some friends. He was about to head into his apartment when a vehicle holding three racist skinheads and their girlfriends pulled up. And these guys had been drinking and mm-hmm. handing out racist flyers from yep. an organization called White Aryan Resistance. Yep. Get a little bit more into that in a second. Uh, one of the skins who I was originally going to use names because I usually do, but I do like your attitude of not giving these guys the yeah. benefit of their names. So I'm yeah. not going to name the skinheads. Yeah. But one Anyone of these... who's curious can get the book uh, 100 Little Hitlers. Oh, that's a good title. Yes. That's a real good title. And so I, I'm all for community education, learning about people, but there is a distinction of putting out the names yeah. and repeating them out loud over and over and over again and forgetting the names of victims and heroes who have stepped in. Yeah, I agree. That's, yep. uh, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, so, oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> written on the thing. <laughs> One bleep. of these skins. You can just bleep it we'll out. bleep out. Yeah. yeah, we'll bleep that out. The bleep you heard was a name that we're not going to say. One of these skins lived in the same uh, block of apartments as mm-hmm. Sarah. And uh, I think one of the descriptions I heard from a police officer was they could have strung tin cans on strings and talked yep. to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they lived that close together. Yep. So yeah, the Nazis had been drinking heavily and putting up white supremacist posters around town. They shouted at Seurat and his friends, and then while their girlfriends shouted for them to kill him, the Nazis jumped uh, Mulugeta Seurat. One of them hit Mulugeta in the back of the head, I believe, with a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no ball or mitt in the car. They did not no. have that for baseball. No, they had it for, for Nazi reasons. Yep. The reason that Nazis carry baseball yep. bats. And um, he had the initials of the organization um, oh, did carved he? into the back. Really? So yes. he had war carved in the... I don't think he had war. I think it was their own group because they had their own... Oh, okay. Yeah. So this was a bat meant for doing exactly what he did with yes. it. Yes. Um, committing violent assault, and in this case, murder, because they continued to hit Mulugeta when he fell to the ground, and they also continued to stomp on him with steel-toed boots. He died that night from blood force trauma. So they mm-hmm. went to prison. Um, yes. 
At the time, a big deal was made about the fact that one of them, the kid with the bat, uh, was the front man of a popular local band and also an actor who'd worked with Gus Van Sant. I had to sort through a bunch of articles where they were talking about this talented young actor and the terrible mm. thing. It's like, well, he murdered a guy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that he was good at acting. Don't mm-hmm. write about that. And they still do that, too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like I said, it's mm-hmm. not hard to... The way that perpetrators of various crimes, depending on their race, makes a big difference in the headline. Yeah, you see it every time. There's a marked difference of what happens when um, one of these people commits a crime and the way that they're reported on the media oh, and the pictures used for them. Or yeah. even if you are a young black boy like Tamir Rice, mm-hmm. a child, and people are saying, oh, he was a big, scary, he was manlike. Yeah. It's horrifying. Yeah. And yet then we see these white men committing crimes who actually did something. Yeah. And the way that they're painted, painted is absolutely ridiculous. Well, and there's really old history to that. I, oh, I remember yeah. reading, we did an episode where we talked about sort of the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. And there was an island that the, there was a massacre on a U.S. military base where a bunch of U.S. soldiers got killed. And then in response, they massacred. And the, the, the language they used was they killed all of the men over 10 on mm-hmm. the island, which you're not a man at 11. Not no. a man at 12. You're no. Not a man at 13, 14, 15, no. 16, maybe 17. But, like, it doesn't matter. I mean, massacring's wrong, but, like, just the language used. Any man over 10 is, like... I feel like you're not a man till 20, but that's just my view. I think it usually takes more, <laughs> like, 28, 29, <laughs> 30, maybe four. I'll let you know when I yeah. hit that point. I'm, I'm at 30 right now, mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't feel all the way there. Now, Mulugeto Surah's murder led to a legal case against Tom Metzger, a shriveled little testicle of a man and the founder <laughs> of White Aryan Resistance, or WAR. You can see a documentary of him made after this point with uh, Louis Theroux, where he spends several days with him. And you get the feeling that he's a ridiculous kind of, and I think this is prob- uh, this caused a problem, because I think mm. that a lot of these people were covered that way, as mm-hmm. sort of like, look at this ridiculous, he's racist, and he's the things he says are terrible, but he's really just a crazy old yes. kook, and he's kind of cute, look at this little guy. Yep. Now, what Tom had been doing is sending his son up to Portland and sending a significant amount of written propaganda yep. up there that was not just propaganda on, you know, not national socialism or mm-hmm. whatever, but was specifically advocating violence and yep. talking about ways to commit violence. Mm-hmm. And I believe you know a little bit more about this than I do. Yeah. So war, his white Aryan resistance group, had these newspapers they would give out that were overtly horrifyingly racist. And the cartoons that they would have on the covers were just absolutely disgusting. And they would send up stacks to Portland for these young groups of men who previously were not organized. They were just going around and they would get drunk and they would talk about being Aryan and racism and all that. Not to say they shouldn't have been taken seriously at all, but they weren't organized at that point. And it wasn't until Tom Medsker and his son stepped in that they began to have tools. They began to have these newspapers, flyers they would pass out, fake welfare applications that they would pass out to women of color and humiliate them and attempt to humiliate them. And it wasn't until that point that they actually had these tools and these um, means of propaganda to pass out that they began to feel organized. And this is where we get into something that's really interesting to me. It's a little bit difficult to talk about. Are you familiar with the concept of the Fuhrer Principle? Um, I don't think I've heard specifically about it, but I imagine it has to do with having a leader to organize you. That's an aspect of it. Yeah. It was the idea, this was like the central idea behind the original Nazis. Yeah. An individual can embody and electrify a people and yeah. bring them up and sort of use them as a tool almost. Yeah. And, like that, and that that's desirable and yeah. good. And obviously, 
that's silly when you start talking about like nations, but there's a little to it when you talk about something like you've got these disaffected kids in Portland who have no mm -hmm. sort of organizing principle and yeah. a guy like Tom Metzger who has just enough charisma, just enough vision to mm -hmm. get them united behind a purpose and yeah. then they become dangerous. Yeah. And I think that you're seeing something similar with a guy like Joey Gibson, who has, I watched his speech, is a good mm -hmm. amount of personal charisma. He's good at speaking. Absolutely. He's good at organizing. Mm -hmm. um, and you, these people, the people who show up at these Patriot prayer rallies, just like the people who murdered Mulugeta Seurat, were doing mm -hmm. shitty racist things in their personal lives beforehand. Yeah. But it took a leader coming in, yeah. and then Absolutely. they're a cohesive whole. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that's where it's important to understand that concept because mm -hmm. I do think it embodies something, not that, like the Nazis said, that this was how everything worked. I don't think yeah. it's how everything worked, but I think it's how Nazis work. Oh, yeah. Across time and whether oh, or not absolutely. they call themselves Nazis or patriots mm -hmm. or whatever, yeah. it's how Nazis work. Yep. Um, so, a little digression. Um, <laughs> yeah, even though Tom Metzger had not specifically ordered the skinheads to commit that particular murder, he was seen as having vicarious liability for indoctrinating kids with racist ideology, publishing information on how to commit violent crimes, and sending people up to talk to them. So he was ordered to pay like $12.5 million in damages. Yep. Yeah, and he wound up Completely losing. Completely yeah. bankrupted him. Completely he had to sell his house. Mm -hmm. He lost his house, yeah. Had to pay amounts every single month. Yeah, up to today at mm -hmm. age like 80-something. Mm -hmm. And they sold his house to a Hispanic family. Yes, uh, they did. They, they, or No, the, the, I think it was, uh, it was Seurat's family, right? Who no. Got, no. No, it was not. Was it the ACLU who got it? Or? Southern Poverty Law Center was the one right. to sue them, if yeah. that's what you're asking. Okay, yeah. right, right, right. And the neighbors were extremely happy yeah. to see the new family move in. They didn't like Tom Metzger. Really? Because, gosh, what a likable guy he was. He seemed like he had a lot on the ball. Uh-huh. I'm sure I, he's a bad neighbor, you're saying. Yes, the I would guy, imagine. <sighs> weird how Nazis are yeah, bad Yeah, it's like neighbors don't like when a bunch of skinheads come in and out of somebody's home. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Weird. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? else I'll keep in mind yes. is these products and services that are about <laughs> to support our show. <laughs> the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And we're back. You didn't hear it because what we just said will not be in the thing, but we just did a great plug for Microsoft that we're not going to repeat. No, absolutely not. You know, in our hearts. In our hearts. In our hearts. So let's get back into racism in Oregon. So Muluguetta Sura is murdered. Uh, His funeral is obviously a a very big deal, very emotional time. A lot of activists come out Mm -hmm. for it. And there are rumors that before the funeral that 300 Nazi skinheads might show up to protest. Yes. Uh, This did not wind up happening. But in spite of the increased visibility of the city's hate problem, Portland's racist skinhead problem only got worse during the 1990s. In a 2017 article for The Guardian, reporter Jason Wilson quotes Ciaran Malloy, a union organizer and anti-fascist activist who was active during this period in the 1990s. Quote, There were multiple gangs and 300 Nazis in a city of 300,000. The anti-racist youth were intimidated and isolated. The Nazis were just openly hanging out on the streets. Yep. Down in uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square, they would just gather and sit around and people knew to avoid that entire block. Yeah. And yeah, there's talk, especially talk from racists about quote unquote no-go zones in places mm-hmm. like London or Paris, which do not exist. And a lot of reporting on establishing that they're not real. Mm-hmm. There were no-go zones in Portland yep. for people of color Absolutely. in this period of time. Pioneer Square would have been one of them. Yep. Sierra Malloy added, quote, it's not hyperbolic to call it a war. There was intense fighting. Mm-hmm. So again, the street fighting that we're seeing right now in Oregon that might happen literally the day after we record this mm-hmm. podcast is nothing new. 
Nope. The constant fighting between racist and anti-racist skinheads in Portland earned it the nickname Skinhead City during yep. the 1990s, mm-hmm. uh, which is a cool nickname. Beats Portlandia. It does beat Portlandia. Yeah, yeah. You guys are going to be carrying Just that because albatross I wanna... around for yeah, a while. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. uh... I'm sorry what people out from L.A. keep doing to nice cities in the Northwest. They destroyed Bend, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I will say about Skinhead City, it's at least accurate. Yeah. yeah. Which is a heavy thing to say. Yeah. But the whole Portlandia, most of, you know, there's some truth to that show, but that show is uh, forgetting a very large portion of our population and culture. <laughs> yeah. Part of what I wonder, depending on how all of this increased political violence goes, is how 20 or 30 years, if that show will just like make no sense to people. I hope so. Yeah. Well... Not in that way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. If yeah. you're if you're going, okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I yeah. was just hoping that uh, <clears throat> we'll win this fight against Joey Gibson, yeah. and yeah. then uh, diverse culture will actually be celebrated for the first time in Portland. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice. That's yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Yes. Uh, so um, now the uh, the Nazi skins who infested Portland and to a degree still invest both Portland and Oregon, were obsessed with an idea that still holds much traction among the fascist right, the Northwest Imperative. The basic reasoning behind the Northwest Imperative is that since Oregon is already super white and filled with fascists, why not try and turn it into a white ethno state? Mm-hmm. Um, from a Nazi point of view, the last 200 years of Oregon history have already done a really good job of laying the groundwork for yep. this. Oregon is currently the whitest state and Portland the whitest big city in the United yep. States. Yeah. There is today an organization called the Northwest Front dedicated to making the dream of the Northwest imperative a reality. The about section of their website sums them up this way. Quote, The Northwest Front is a political organization of Aryan men and women in the United States and Canada of all ages and social backgrounds who recognize that an independent and sovereign white nation in the Pacific Northwest is the only possibility for the survival of the white race on this continent. So Mm -hmm. that's the rhetoric. That's what they're angling for. The Southern Poverty Law Center identifies 18 different hate groups in the state of Oregon. Uh, And outside of explicit hate groups, Oregon still has a lot of its old problems with hate. A 2011 audit found that 64% of landlords and leasing agents in the city discriminated against black and Latino renters, Mm -hmm. uh, giving them higher rents, forcing them to pay larger deposits, and levying additional fees against them. Absolutely. 64%. Absolutely. That's nuts. And with gentrification as well Mm -hmm. the neighborhoods that have been most shaken 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 nice nice yeah (laughs) most shaken they got shicked real good yes yeah yeah. um by gentrification in uh recent times are the same neighborhoods like the albina neighborhood Mm -hmm. that we have seen a lot of the history you've talked about of um pushing people of color to that center are now gentrified with huge condos and entirely unrecognizable. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, and this is, the, I mean, you can trace some of that back to Portlandia, to be honest. So, uh, black students in Portland are suspended and expelled at a rate four to five times higher than yeah. that of their white peers. And this brings us more or less to the modern era, where mm-hmm. we are today. Portland is a city with a lot of left-wing political activism now, and a definite reputation is being, quote, woke. It's seen as a hippy-dippy sort of place. But, mm-hmm. you know, we've as we've covered, there's a very long history of discrimination and a very mm-hmm. long history of racist organizing. 
Over the last two years, though, Oregon has entered what may be a different era. The fighting in the streets is bigger and bloodier than it has ever been before. Mm. The group behind it, Patriot Prayer, and to a lesser extent, the Proud Boys, uh, is harder to place and harder to get the mainstream to condemn than a man like Tom Metzger and an organization like White Aryan Resistance. Newspapers know what to do when you call yourself white or mm-hmm. Aryan resistance. Absolutely. If you're Patriot Prayer, you're covered in an American flag, mm-hmm. and you say you don't support hate. Yep. Or if you're the Proud Boys and you're punching each other and naming cereals, mm-hmm. like, it's harder for especially yeah. casual, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are now, and that's what we're going to get to in the next episode, The Coming of Patriot Prayer, the story of Joey Gibson and the bloodshed that has gone with it. Mm-hmm. But before we close out today, uh, I would like to talk with you a little bit about one of what I think is the most promising attempts to kind of fix this mm-hmm. problem, this very deep problem in Oregon, of racism mm-hmm. in Oregon, of, uh, of you know, white supremacy in Oregon, the Rural Organizing Project. Yeah. Do you want to tell me a little bit about them? Absolutely. Well, first, I want to just close out our yeah. conversation about how Absolutely. Yeah. with a lot of the viewpoints that people think that people in Portland have and Portlanders think that they themselves have, they have let a lot of this just go entirely under the radar And I think it's because a lot of people in Portland, particularly white people, and I don't mean just particularly, I'm talking specifically about white people, Mm -hmm. they are silent about this oppression. They think if they put a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard that they've done racial justice work. And that's just not how it's going to solve all this. And so people need to get involved in organizations. They need to educate themselves. They need to read more about the history of Oregon, listen to podcasts like this, and uh, change things. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. I did that just for you. I appreciate it. Rural Organizing Project. So I haven't personally organized with Rural Organizing Project, and I want to say that up front because Mm -hmm. I really think that uh, getting a representative from their organization would be wonderful. But basically, Rural Organizing Project focuses on underrepresented rural areas in Oregon that have been disenfranchised and ignored because a big reason why we see this current uprising and problem with these groups like the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, even groups like Patriot Prayer will have this kind of sentiment in their mission statements that poor white people, especially poor white men, are not being properly represented. They feel like things are being taken away from them and they feel like the right-wing propaganda that they are getting, radio stations they listen to, podcasts they listen to, and uh, websites that they go on frequently, they feel like they are getting accurate information when they oftentimes are getting uh, very tainted and biased information that is not telling the whole story of why we have gotten to this point within our hyper-capitalistic system. And so... Rural Organizing Project really tries to bring representation back to those areas. They try to organize with legislators to ensure that we are focusing energy and resources to make sure that people are not being left out in the cold, quite literally, um, not being left out um, to just rely on these groups to take them in, but to instead feel like they are part of the Oregon community and that they are valued and that you don't have to be in a city to get those resources. And through that, they are able to educate people on the dangers of these groups like Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, et cetera. And so the work that they do is so important because it is very true that we cannot ignore rural areas in our communities, not just to fight 
racism, but because they are human beings that deserve resources and deserve care. And rural areas have been hit hard by this hyper-capitalistic automation and um, jobs have been stripped away over the course of history. And so people have been just seeing jobs go away. And instead of being given the proper information of, oh, the reason why these jobs have changed is for these reasons. They instead are told by somebody, oh, you know why? It's because of that immigrant. It's because of of women wanting to enter the workforce. It's because of this and that. And so then they hold tight to these traditional ideas of what it is to be an American, which were never accurate to begin with if we really look at our history. But that is how they're able to be radicalized. So Rural Organizing Project takes that on, and I am very proud to have them in Oregon. And it's it's my opinion, just as a journalist, that low key and low key because it hasn't been covered enough. One of the most important stories going on in the country right now is the disintegration of society in rural parts of the United States. Yep. For example, cattle rustling is the highest it's been in more than a hundred years. Cattle rustling, mm-hmm. agricultural theft is the highest it's been in quite a long time. Um, you are seeing rising rates of poverty in a lot of chunks of rural America. What you're seeing is a breakdown of social order in these places, mm-hmm. and all of these things are number one major contributors to the growth of fascist movements, yep. major contributors to the growth of racist movements. Uh, and on a human level, they're just terrible for the people there. And mm-hmm. we, most people listening to this probably live in cities. It is important to pay attention to what happens out there, both because they're your fellow citizens and because when their lives get worse, your lives get worse. Absolutely. That's the way it works in a society. Mm-hmm. So, listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you find this compelling, please uh, donate some bucks to the Rural Organizing Project. Absolutely. You can um, look them up. Yeah, look them up online. We'll include the link to the website mm-hmm. uh, on ours. So yeah, check that out. Check out all of our sources at mm-hmm. BehindTheBastards.com. And uh, you know, open up your wallet strings if you have a couple extra bucks to mm-hmm. give. And if you're in Oregon, volunteer. Yeah. Volunteer with Rural Organizing Project. Absolutely. Uh, and if you're in Oregon, in general, be more active. There's some stuff going on. There's, There's stuff so going much on. going on. Uh, the only thing that'll make it get better is the people who aren't, I'll say charitably on the shitty side of things Mm -hmm. getting active or at least supporting the people who are being active in the streets because that's real important too so well i'm working on a project to help make that easier for people to have access to what is needed in the area and i'll send that to you once i have something awesome well uh you got anything else you want to you want to pitch plug man search for meeting Right, yeah. Victor Frankel. Read Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankel, Holocaust Survivor, right? Yes. Check it all out. Uh, You can check out this podcast on our website, Behind the Bastards. You can check out all the sources. And, of course, uh, tomorrow we will be talking about Patriot Prayer, Joey Gibson, and the most dangerous street gang in America that you probably haven't heard of, Patriot Prayer. So, (laughs) all of that coming up next in the week. Have fun with it. Check it out. And um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at BastardsPod. And that's 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 all I got for you. Go go do something positive for the world. Goodbye and I love statistically about 40% of you. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.